you will, turn back in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 19. We are looking at a very peculiar and specific ordinance that the Lord gave the children of Israel in the wilderness. As you know, our study is Arise, Move, and Go. The essence of our elders' exhortation out of Psalm 107 is that we are all on a journey. Believers know that. We are not home yet, but we are headed there. Now, our journey is a wilderness sojourn. You must know that. And in the wilderness, there are all kinds of dangers. You need God to keep you. And you need him to help you make your way through this wilderness. And he has given us a compass. It's his word. He has given us a compass. It is his spirit. The essence of his word and his spirit is summed up in the gospel. You must know the gospel. You fail to understand the gospel. You fail to understand the pathway to glory. The subtitle of our message is the red heifer. The red heifer. It is a doctrine of purification through a type and pattern. The red heifer is a symbol of both our sin and the righteousness of Christ's shed blood by which you and I are sanctified. I want to assert that again because we want to make our way through this passage of Scripture, understanding that the red heifer is pointing to something other than herself. And if you fail to miss that, you will be set up for another grand optic that is on its way today and has been on its way since 2015 And those who do not understand Jesus Christ to be the end of the law for righteousness will be taken in by that grand lie. The red heifer is a symbol of both our sin and the perfections that are in Christ. And Christ himself is the one that deals with them. I like the way the prophet Isaiah put it in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. This has everything to do with the work of Christ represented in the red heifer. It's important for you and I to know that if you're going to have a relationship with God, you must be clean. It's important for you and I to know that if you're going to have a relationship with God, you must have been cleansed, past tense. You must be in the process of cleansing present tense, and you must know the totality of cleansing that comes with facing him on that last day. Our elder also alluded to it, the work of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ in the body of Christ today is one of constantly washing the great joy that our Lord Jesus will have on that last day is that his bride will be just like him without spot and without wrinkle because he is washing her continually by the water of the word of the gospel of his finished work. That must be understood by you. Now, the exercise that the children of Israel is going through is that of what is called purification. And the purification is a purification process around what is the liability of walking with God and living in this world. And the liability is this, that you and I are prone to contamination. We are prone to filth. 
we are prone to uncleanness and disease. And God is catechizing, educating the children of Israel in this reality. To walk with a holy God, you must be holy. To to enjoy fellowship with the true and the living God, you must be in a standing of holiness and in a state and process by which cleansing takes place to sustain your fellowship with God. Did that make some sense, children of God? I'll be drilling that home with you through all kinds of New Testament passages, which you shall, which you should know. I love David. He's going to teach us well. How shall a young man cleanse his way? by taking heed thereto according to God's word. In other words, the only way you and I are going to get clean, going to stay clean and end up clean is to take heed to God's word. You want to find a generation that is clean in their own eyes? Read it, Proverbs chapter 30. Makes it very clear. I live in a generation like that. They're pure in their own eyes, clean in their own eyes but they have not submitted to the cleansing that comes through Christ. And as such, they are perpetrating the fraud that they are clean and that they're all right and that they're good and they're just. But there's none good, no, not one. There's none clean apart from the work of Christ in their life. So I live in a world full of uncleanness, so do you. Now, when we're talking about the whole concept of contamination and sin and disease, ladies and gentlemen, I am not talking about your flesh. I am not talking about your physical dimension. I am not talking about your peculiar angst, propensity, or inclination towards vileness. Nor am I talking about your assumed sort of detestation against uncleanness. I am not talking about your preference for not wanting to be around certain kind of people because to you they are unclean. I am not talking about the inclination of your practices as OCD as they may be about how many times you wash a day or how many times you clean a day or how many times you cross a day or how many times you bow a day. None of that is what the text is talking about. But it's important for you to... It's important for you to wrestle with what I'm saying, and I'll tell you why. Because it's much easier to pretend you're clean by an act rather than trusting Jesus Christ in the totality of the merits of his cleansing blood. Much easier. And this area in which I'm laying a foundation is prominent in religion. Even in our best churches, you still have people that think that they're cleaner than other people. Because of what they do or don't do. Because of what they eat or do not eat. But the Bible's clear. It's not what goes into a man's belly that defiles him. But what comes up out of the heart. That's what defiles a man. So let's lay a foundation real clear right now. If you are someone who is looking at this text. And you're thinking that the text is telling you how to practice hygienal behavior. You have missed the fact that the Old Testament is summed up in the New. And it's completely fulfilled in the person of Christ, which is going to be my argument today. The red heifer means nothing if it doesn't land on the person of Jesus Christ, who is our purification and our cleansing. The first point I want to call to your attention today is point number one, a prescription 
for purification of sins. Now, God has taken the nation of Israel and used them for some 1,500 years from Moses to Jesus as a kind of catechism and a system of religious typology and symbolism. So this is a, a, a tutorial system teaching us what material things or physical things or temporal things about higher, grander spiritual realities. We do know that, do we not? Remember what Paul said? The, uh, Jesus said it. The flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. And what he's doing is making a clear dichotomy between the Old Testament patterns of physical things and the New Testament reality of spiritual things. And it's important for you and I to be able to read the Old Testament with New Testament eyes or else we're simply trapped in the old system as was and as is Israel right now. And every religious system that fails to see the perfections centered in the person of Christ. And it's important for you to get that and know it as well. Point number one, he gave them a prescription for purification. Did he not? A prescription for purification outlined in chapter 19, verse 1 through 9. I just want you to mark that the central object that he's going to use for the purification is a young heifer or young female cow of two to three years old. It was a tender calf that has never been brought under the yoke and therefore never brought into a slavish rigor so that its body would not know anything about the toil of control and slavery. It is a innocent goat or our, our cow, female cow, that has roamed freely and is tender and is going to be a pattern of him who has never ever known sin any time in his life. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this heifer is going to serve for us in this unique sort of descriptive. It is a red heifer. A red heifer, not any cow, but a red heifer. Now, the Jews are absolutely meticulous in the uh, hyper-focus around a red heifer. That's because they're still trapped by the old system. And they are looking for a pure red heifer right now, unfortunately. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But the red heifer points to the fact that our sins are so obnoxious to God, as I quoted in Isaiah chapter 118, though they be as red as crimson. When you look at the red heifer, you see her red all over her body. That's a picture of the fact that you and I are sinners through and through. There's not one spot on us clean, not one hair, not one follicle. We are totally depraved by nature. We're just like that red heifer in that sense. Am I making some sense? Right. And the red heifer, therefore, is pointing to Israel as a whole to let them know that God sees us all that way. He sees us all in absolute need of a substitute who can represent us as a red heifer and then represent God as the grounds of purging our sin by the whole burnt offering of that red heifer. In Numbers chapter 19, we look at verse 2. Notice what it says. This is the ordinance which the Lord 
hath commanded, saying, speak unto the children of Israel. So who is God talking to? He's talking to Moses. God almost never talked to Israel directly. It was always through a servant. Either it's through Moses or Aaron or through one of the temporary prophets, Joshua or Eleazar, because that's how God speaks. He speaks through his servant. And they were told, notice what it says, to bring a red heifer without spot wherein is no blemish. Is that not New Testament language? Is that not telling you and I that our situation is impossible apart from the grace of God? Is it not telling us that we need one who has the capacity to utterly cleanse us from all faults and all sins and thus declare us without spot and blemish? Do y'all know how to read the Old Testament with New Testament eyes? So we're looking for a heifer which has not one follicle of a deviation of a red hair which was hard to find. Now, the Jews in their argument would say from the days of Moses till now, we've had about eight to nine or 10 red heifers. I'll talk about a few of that toward the end of this. Nothing in the scriptures affirm that whatsoever. I'm just telling you how traditions set people up to fall. Okay, so the idea of the prescription for purification is simply this, sub point A, a recognition of God's what? holiness. It was for this reason Israel, when they first met God, as he brought them out of the land of Egypt, they had to go through the wet sea. They had to go through what? The Red Sea. There is your tension there again. Red referring to our sin, water referring to our cleansing. That was a baptism up out of Egypt into the wilderness. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, did he not? They were all baptized in the cloud and in the sea. The red was no pun intended. It makes all the sense in the world. That whole group of redeemed men and women were nothing but sinners. And they had to be washed typically in the blood of the lamb, just as you and I have to be washed. Am I making some sense? So Israel understood the gospel. They just didn't believe it. So God had redeemed them out of bondage, not by their power, nor by their might, even not by their will. And we tell men and women, you're not saved by works. You're not saved by might. You're not even saved by your will. It's not of him that runs, nor of him that willeth, but of God that has mercy. Are you saved today? It's because God had mercy on you. It wasn't because you are willing. You're no better than anyone else. God hunted your raggedy soul down in his mercy and goodness and snatched you up out of Egypt by a powerful hand. He ran you to the water and told you to be ye baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And that's what happened. It was the grace of God. It was the grace of God because God's holy, saints. God's holy. And then when he brought him out, he brought him to Sinai, as we had learned. And he said, on this day, you're going to hear from God. God will give you the 10 words. But what did he tell them beforehand? Moses, tell all these people, go wash and clean themselves and make sure no man touches his wife because I want them to be consecrated for this moment. So immediately Israel is understanding 
that if we're going to have a relationship with God on a level of religious observance, God wants us clean. Did that make some sense? Right. It begins again to increase your conscious awareness that you and I by nature are defiled. And so Israel had to clean in order to draw near to the mount, which they could not touch. And then the same thing happened before Israel crossed over the Jordan into the promised land in the book of Joshua, chapter three, verse five. Remember, Joshua said, you take them into the promised land. But before you go in, guess what? Tell the people to sanctify themselves this day. See, sanctification is always about washing and cleansing. Did that make some sense? Joshua uh, chapter uh, three, verse five. Please just pull it up so they can see it in their eyes. Israel was catechized in this washing and cleansing and this purification process. And our text is going to lay it out in a more specific way. And Joshua said unto the people, what? Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. What were they doing? Preparing for God's special presence. And that means that they couldn't come in an ordinary way. They had to actually clean up. And I'm hearing the New Testament all over the place. Are you not? Jesus said, now are you clean through the word which I have spoken unto you? Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but you have been justified. You have been sanctified. You have been washed by the spirit of the living God. The Bible lays out for you and I that you and I are not saved by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy hath he saved us through the washing, washing, washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost. All believers have to be washed. Am I making some sense? Are you washed in the blood? Are you washed in the soul cleansing power of the blood? That is the doctrine that we elucidate from this text because our God is what? He's holy and he's a consuming fire. And holiness is what his people are to be about. Secondly, sub point B, it is a reminder of our need for constant cleansing. Would you agree? Constant cleansing. So we have a red heifer in verse two. Look at what it says over in verse seven of chapter 19. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and he shall bathe his flesh in water. And afterwards he shall come into the camp and the priest shall be unclean until even. That's because he's handling the heifer that will actually have to be burned and, and consumed uh, as, a, uh, as a whole burnt offering for the people. Again, we read over in chapter 19, verse 10, these words. Notice what it says. And he that gathereth the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until even, and it shall be unto the children of Israel and to the stranger that sojourneth among them for a statute for a little while. Right. This is where we try to help our Jewish brethren understand the difference between the Old and the New Testament, because they would continue to view the Old Testament as vital and relevant today. And everywhere you read that that English word forever, forever, it really should be translated continually until the old covenant is fulfilled. The word will be used with circumcision. The word will be used with sacrifices and offerings. But my Bible tells me once Christ came, circumcision is over. Once Christ came, sacrifices are over. So there's a transition from the old to the new when him of whom all those things were pointing is come. Does that make some sense? 
but the perpetuity of that ordinance was from generation to generation to generation to generation because Israel is the conduit for the coming of the seed, that is Messiah. That whole group of people were to engage in all of Torah, not because Torah was of itself making them right with God, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. But what Torah was teaching them was that God would bring one who himself was our righteousness. So they had to practice the washings and practice the cleansing and acknowledge their uh, fault and acknowledge their weaknesses every time they came near to the Lord. What else I might say about this as we move to the other unique instructions given in this prescription is that literally what's going on in chapter 19 is about the priesthood. This is really about the priests who every time they were called to their order, their taxonomy, remember I told you they, they would worship God or serve God in order, some for a month or two and then others so forth in order. They had to wash and cleanse every time they came before God. And what God had set aside was a special mechanism for cleansing called the waters of purification and the waters of sanctification. Am I making some sense? You can visualize now that they had preserved continually a water of purification wherein the ashes of the heifer were and a few other components I'm going to talk about in the moment. They had to employ those elements in their preparation to serve God because we were warned in chapter 19, whosoever does not wash with the waters of purification, that person will be cut off from God. That's how serious this matter was. And of course, this was alluded to for anyone that knows their Bible in Leviticus 4. God had already talked about the burnt offering and the need for it to be completely consumed and the blood to be poured out before the tabernacle and the ashes to be used for this process. So again, what are we dealing with? We're dealing with the holiness of God. We're dealing with the need for us to be reminded that we are sinners, This is what I love about the New Testament. Didn't I tell you this? You can't read the New Testament without learning the old because the vast majority of the New Testament is nothing but an interpretation of the Old Testament. And hence you hear 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. If anyone confess his sins, God is just and faithful to what? And to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you have in that prescription of 1 John 1, 9, it'll come up so you can see it. If we confess our sins and we should be confessing our sins, he is what? Not us, him. And therefore just to forgive us if we were to follow that through, he cannot forgive me until he is faithful in my behalf. God doesn't arbitrarily forgive anyone. Forgiveness comes through a red heifer type who is able to die in your behalf and come under the hell burning of God's judgment so that the benefits of their death is merited to you so you can be forgiven. Am I making some sense? So God is faithful to qualify us for forgiveness because Christ is for us who know the word of God, our red heifer. It goes on to say, and to do what? Cleanse us. Literally keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Don't you need a water that flows? 
Yes, that's what our text is getting ready to teach us in a moment as we deal with the, the uh, uh, articles that go into the uh, purification of water. We need a water constantly flowing, and that's what God prescribed for Israel. Make sure the water flows because the flowing of the water means the agency for cleansing. It can't be still water. It can't be still water. It can't be stopped water. The water must be running, constantly running, because the water represents the work of the Holy Ghost. The living water of life is what cleanses us. He washes us. He purifies us. That's why I like what David said in Psalm 51, verse 1. Psalm 51, verse 1. Remember David in that penitent psalm? Listen to what he said. He said, have mercy upon me, O God. According to your has said, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, do what? Now, if you follow the purification rites of this water of purification, actually that water was designed to blot out the transgressions of the sinner. To blot it out. Okay, see, this, this means you got to know your Bible. Notice what he says. The tender mercies blot out my transgressions. Look at verse 2. Notice what he goes on to say. Do what? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my... This doesn't have anything with what kind of soap you use. I don't care if your soap is organic. I don't care if it's filled with all kind of chemicals. Organic or chemical soap won't cleanse your heart. It won't cleanse your mind. It won't cleanse your attitude. You need an agent that goes deeper than your skin to change your mind. And I'm getting ready to teach you that the priests who were honest with God knew that. The priests that were honest with God knew that the blood of bulls and goats could never clear the conscience. See, this, this, I, I can work with a priest like that, can you? I'm talking about an honest priest. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he's playing with toys. He knows he's not dealing with the real thing. Now what he needs to do is stop lying to people and telling them the toy is the real thing when the toy is not a real thing at all, but points to the real thing. This is where religion messes people up. And it does it all the time. And so David tells us in verse two, Lord, wash me. That's his appeal thoroughly from my iniquity. See, David knew something about what kind of sinner he was. This is where, remember, Peter was struggling with whether or not he was a sinner. Our Lord Jesus on the night he's going to be betrayed, took off his clothes, put on a robe and took a basin of water and started washing the feet of the disciples. And Peter said, not me. That's because Peter was temporarily insane like a lot of saints are. Temporarily insane. Whenever the master comes to you to wash you, you let him wash you. You let him wash you. And and then when the master told Peter, Peter, if you don't let me wash you, you and I have nothing to do with each other. Lord, start with my head. Wash me all the way down to my feet. Because Peter understood the implications. And here what I love about that blessed first century intervention is that the master was there. And he was doing a symbolism, which he told them in that chapter, chapter 13. This is a hoopadine. It's a pattern. Follow this pattern because the job of the gospel is to see sinners really washed 
not ceremonially washed, not temporarily washed, not, not if you were typically washed, but really washed. And that's a work that only God can do. Look at verse 7 of, of Psalm 51. David will teach you. He always looked to his master. Purge me with what? That's one of the components that goes into the purification. Did y'all read it? I really want you to learn how to listen to the word of God when it's in the reading, because that is where your sanctification comes in. If you're passive in your reading and your mind's all over Timbuktu, you, you, you're missing the blessing of the explicit proposition of God's word. The purification of these waters had to have as one of its components hyssop. It also had to have cedar, right? And then it had to be in running water. We're about to teach on that now. David said, wash me with hyssop. Now the hyssop was a sponge. It was a leafy, uh, spongy type of element that could absorb water and could absorb, absorb blood. So you can see it being sprinkled. Can you not sprinkled on David? And David is saying, no, not on my body, on my soul on my mind, on my heart. And only the Holy Ghost can do that. New Testament has laid this out. By the blood of sprinkling, are you and I sanctified through the sufferings of Christ? It never can be physical blood. Did you guys get that? It never can be physical blood. It's extremely important for you and I to get this. Look at uh, chapter 19 again over in uh, verse uh, 12. He shall purify himself with this purification of water on the third day and on the seventh day he shall be clean. But if he purify not himself the third day, then the seventh day he shall not be clean. He's telling God is telling the priest, don't play games with me. When you come in to do service in the priesthood, make sure you wash according to my word. Don't wash your own kind of way, which is what a lot of religious folk love to do. Well, you know, I'm, I'm getting right with God my own kind of way. You know, just, I, 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 God knows my heart. He really does know your heart. He knows it better than you do. God knows my heart. God knows that I mean, well, you really don't. Because when God gives you an explicit command and you think you can prevaricate that, go around that, that means you're in rebellion against God. You are saying that you're wiser than God. And nothing could be further from the truth. And so God is teaching us here how he wants the priest to make sure that they don't act a fool and violate protocol and think that they can come near God. Now, what he does elsewise in verses 13 through 16 is going to be important because the priest, like a pastor and elders, are dealing with life. We're dealing with human predicaments. We're dealing with people in physical sicknesses. We're dealing with people with uh, psychological challenges. We're dealing with people in terms of law enforcement, in terms of criminal activity. It's just true. The church, when properly equipped, we're in the prison systems. We are ministering to men and women. We're in the hospitals. I'm going to talk about that in a moment to tell you about the big lie going on today there. But the reality is, is that the church is called to be a priest in all of the different sectors of life. Am I making some sense? Because men living and dying still need a mediator. And what you and I are used to in our life is um, being around loved ones and being around friends and constituents. And then all of a sudden they die. Now, all of us are going to die apart from the return of Christ, right? It is appointed unto men once to die. And what God was doing with Israel since 
They chose to hang out in the wilderness 38 years. Since they chose to hang out in the wilderness 38 years, we got a lot of bodies we got to bury, don't we? And so people are dying every day and God is giving prescriptions on how to deal with that. Because remember, God's holy and you and I are by nature sinful and nothing is more descript of what it means for you and I to be a sinner than for us to be dead. This dead thing is critical. Listen to the text as we work it through. Whosoever touches a dead body of any man that is dead and purifies not himself, he defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. Do you see it? Now, this will be true for the commoner in Israel, but it's certainly true for the priest. The priest could not engage in, a, in an emergency call of people having died and then go into the tabernacle to do service without actually going through the purification process. Did that make some sense? Notice what he says. He defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That soul shall be cut off because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him. Water of separation, meaning this this formula that God is calling us to is designed to typically separate you from the unclean condition of the world to separate you unto God. Waters of separation. All believers have been separated unto God. Did you know that? separated unto God. This is the doctrine of election, whether you know it or not. God chose you. You didn't choose him. And he drew you to himself. You and I are gods before we're anything else. Separated unto God, sanctified unto God, set apart for his glory. And that was implicated in the doctrine of baptism. When you came up out of the water of baptism, you told the world, I'm separated unto God. He's mine and I'm his. And whatever the Lord wants me to do, that I am called to do. And notice what it says. He shall be unclean. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is yet upon him. Verse 14 through 16. Now watch this. This is the law that when a man dieth in a tent, all that come into the tent and all that is in the tent shall be what? Seven days for a whole week. Now everybody is conscious that their involvement in what people in our society today would call normal, which is dying has now been contaminated by that person's death. Y'all read the text? Everybody that comes into the tent in their mercy and their benevolence and their care, and they should, we're going to be with a loved one when they're passing away. We're going to help them if they know the Lord Jesus Christ to usher into glory. We're going to pray, sing songs and hymns and praises, right? Helping them cross over Jordan. Are we not? The children of Israel went through all this and God told them, you are now unclean right along with that person that you are engaged with. That was to increase Israel's consciousness that they too are sinners. Stay with me. Let me teach you right quick. The notion that we die is an affirmation that we are sinners. I tell people frequently when they can handle it in a sermon. Uh, during a uh, funeral service. We are here because of an unnatural event. What do you mean, pastor? God did not create us originally to die. Death is an intervention as a consequence of sin. And when we have that loved one in the casket, we're simply saying God is right. The wages of sin is what? And we have to affirm that. Funerals and memorials are all unnatural services. Am I making some sense now? 
Right. And so the people that are in the room or in the uh, mortuary or wherever we're doing the uh, memorial, I say, do you see that person in that casket? That's you. That's you. In a few days, months, weeks, and years, you're going to be there too because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We're all contaminated. We're all diseased. Am I making some sense? It's important for us to know. People be acting strange at funerals. Let me stop. Acting strange like, you know, like I don't want to go see the body. Why? Why you don't want to see that body? Because that body is you. In five minutes, you and I are going to be there. All that is, is the truth of the gospel. It will give you an opportunity to say, you know what, Lord, is there a way that I can avoid the calamity of what's in front of me? And the answer is yes. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And when men and women know God in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. When men and women know God in the pardon of their sins, they don't have to worry about that stuff. They know that they have been separated. The waters of separation have prepared you and I to be part of a humanity that's still dying. Am I making some sense? So saved folk come to funeral services just fine. They have on their hazmat suit. It's called the Holy Ghost. It's called being separated under God. When your mind is right, when your mind is right and your soul is right, you know you've been washed. You're more capable of ministering to them than anybody else. Everybody else falling out and having, oh, and God said, weep and howl, you sinners, for your misery that shall come upon you when you live and you die, intentionally rebelling against the only way of escape, which is the Lord. You need to be wailing. You know how they wail and fall out and, oh, oh, oh. Right, you need to do all that when you haven't made preparation for eternity. You need to do all that. You need to, but when you have made preparation for eternity by having already died in the person of Christ and rose again with the Lord Jesus by the power of the gospel, you don't fear death. You understand it as an education. It's an education. And if that was a true believer, what we know is the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive because of righteousness. What we know is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what we know. So we quickly say, look at him, look at her. They are not there. That is their body. Their spirit is presently with the Lord. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. This is our theology around these things and you need to know this. Otherwise you will collapse into a kind of morbid fear and anxiety, not understanding the triumph of the gospel. And so we're being uh, catechized here to understand these things more particularly. Um, Point number two in our outline as we deal with a principle of defilement and death. 
This is what uh, God is teaching Israel to understand. Look at verse 15. In every open vessel, I'm sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to verse 14 through 16 to teach you something. This is the law. When a man dies in a tent, all that comes into the tent, all that is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. Now, everybody knows they can't approach God for seven days because they're unclean, okay? And, and that's just, remember we're in the wilderness. We're not in the promised land. The wilderness is the place of education and preparation for the promise. Did that come home? Right. So let me see if I can give you three categories. We do things in triads here because the Bible does. When you and I are brought out of Egypt, that's called deliverance. Deliverance. As we're going through the wilderness, that's called development. Development. We're being educated. When they go into the promised land, that's called deployment. God wants to deploy a people who have been educated on how to walk with God. So when they go into the promised land, they know how to live. Am I making some sense? See, every day is class for the Israelites in the wilderness. And every day in this world for you and me is what? Class as well. Every day God's teaching us something. If you're a good student, you'll learn it. If you're not, you'll miss the lesson. And under point number two, he's teaching us about the defilement of death. Look at verse 15. And every open vessel which has no covering bound upon it is unclean. That's in that house. That's in the home of the person that is dead. What God is saying is the very aroma in the have, the very atmosphere of the house is unclean because that person has died. Does that make some sense? If there are lids open, the, the food is contaminated by the presence of what may be already processes of putrefaction. And you're, now you can't touch any of that. And what that was about, whether you know it or not, is God wants you and I to understand that sin is exceedingly sinful. Exceedingly sinful. Exceedingly. See, today in my generation, we play sin down like it's nothing. But when you play sin down like it's nothing, you also play Christ down like he's nothing. And then you play God down like he's nothing. See what I'm getting at? Now God is just as filthy as you and as sinful and fickle as you are. This is why so many people have a false notion about God today. He's not the man upstairs. He's not your good old body, buddy. He's a holy God. He's a just God. He's a righteous God, separate from sinners. And if we're going to draw near to him, we got to come to him on the grounds of his word. And the holy people of God who are called to the work of the priesthood should know something about right hearts. And it goes on to say in verse 16, and whosoever touches one that is slain with a sword in the open field or a dead body or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take of the ashes of the burnt heifer of purification for sin and what? Running water shall they put there in, in a vessel and a clean person shall take what? Hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tent, upon the vessels, upon the persons that were there, upon those that touched the bone of one that is slain dead or in the grave. You see what he's doing? He's taking the water and sanctifying everybody that had to come in contact with death. Now, this is the predicament that our Lord gloriously laid out for us in the New Testament. He wanted you and I to understand fully that what we're dealing with is spiritual realities. This is the same ordinance for lepers. 
in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 1 through through. Now, I know that you do not believe that you are a leper, but you are. You are a leper spiritually. Leprosy was a very, very debilitating disease that destroyed the nerve endings. And therefore, the flesh began to, um, it began to die and to rot. And it becomes a picture of our incapability of being sensible to spiritual things. You and I are dead spiritually and we are spiritual lepers separated from God. Now listen to the language of the leprosy here. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron saying, let's walk this through. When a man shall have in the skin of his flesh a rising, a scab or bright spot, and it be in the skin of his flesh like the plague of what? Then he shall be brought unto Aaron the priest or unto his, his sons the priest, verse 3. And the priest shall look on the plague in the skin of the flesh. And when the hair in the plague is turned white and the plague in sight be deeper than the skin, deeper than the skin of his flesh, it is the plague of leprosy. In other words, the job of the priest was a health care system to make sure the society understood when it was in danger of some kind of contaminating disease. And what I love about this is he's looking with Physical observation, empirical observation, but his discernment says it's only leprosy when it's deeper than the skin. And it's a picture of the reality that you and I are sinners at nature. We are not sinners because of what we do. We do what we do because we are sinners. And then this whole description in, in, in uh, Leviticus 13 ferrets itself out, speaking about how the priest would come every seven days to see whether or not the leprosy did what? Spread. Spread through his skin, spread through the home, spread through the house. By the time we get to chapter 14, if the leprosy had spread through the whole house, everything had to be scraped down. Everything had to be taken down. Everything had to be washed. Now, you know, you and I would say, Pastor, why don't they just burn it up and, and build a new house? You're missing the point. This is catechism about the nature of sin, how it contaminates. Am I making some sense? They had to go through these rigors to realize that they were desperate sinners and that by the works of the law, they could never, ever be justified. For who can make themselves clean, Job says. You can declare your own cleanness, but declaring it does not make you clean. If God does not declare you clean, you're still unclean. Chapter 14, here it is, chapter 14, verse 1 through 3. This is where the uh, priest now, once again, has come back to that person that's a leper. And the Lord spake to Moses, saying in verse 2, these words, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his what? The day he's cleansed, he shall be brought unto the priest. You see how you cannot get away from the priesthood? Because the goal of the priest is to be able to recognize the spiritual and social and physical conditions of the people. That priesthood was needed because Israel was in danger of contamination as they're making their way through the wilderness. As they are living as a mixed multitude with the Egyptians as they're living in rebellion against God. And remember, I told you this two weeks ago. God said, if you disobey me, I will bring all the plagues of Egypt upon you. Now, you and I are living in some very germane days around diseases. I'm going to touch on that in a moment. But here is where God is saying the priests were to play a role in discerning and recognizing the extent to which this plague was. 
And if there should have been such thing as a healing of the leprosy, that's what this is described, describing the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper. By the way, there was never a healing of a Jewish leper in the Old Testament. Never. There was only a healing of a Gentile in order to teach the Jews that Jews and Gentiles are no better than each other and God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. I taught us this in a Tuesday class. Naaman the leper experienced the blessing of cleansing and it wasn't because he followed the Levitical code. It was because he obeyed the prophet and went down to the Jordan and he had to die in the waters of Jordan. There it is again. You have to die in order to live. His cleansing came from obedience of faith and dying in the muddy waters of Jordan, which points to the death of Jesus Christ. That makes sense, does it not? He goes back healed and and Syria then retreats from making war with Israel. But here we are dealing with the case of the leper. And notice what it says. And the priest shall go forth out of the camp and the priest shall look and behold if the plague of the leprosy be healed. And the leper, verse 4, Then shall the priest command to take for him that is to be cleansed two birds alive, clean and cedar wood, scarlet, and there it is. So now all of these parts, all of these components in the ceremonial cleansing of the leper all speak to the character and nature of Christ in his death on our behalf. You got two birds. Y'all got that? Two birds is the doctrine of union. The one bird represents the leper who is going to be healed. The other bird represents the Lord Jesus who will die for that leper. Then we have the other components for the cleansing. He, the two birds alive and clean. Cedar wood was used. Scarlet was used. And hyssop was used. Look at verse 5. Watch it. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be what? Who is that bird? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he shall be killed in an earthen vessel. Why? Because the earthen vessel represents our humanity. Jesus assumed a human nature and Paul said, we have this treasure in what? Earthen vessels that the excellency of the glory might not be of us, but of God. Do y'all see the gospel coming? That poor innocent bird had to die in the stead of the other bird so that other bird could live. And the blood of that little bird, it was a dove, a pigeon, had to go inside that vessel because it's pointing to our humanity, pointing to our humanity. And that vessel was to be placed over what is called running water. All this had to be done where there was a stream flowing. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one that brings about the efficacy of the atoning work of Christ in your life. We're about to see that in a moment, right? I've already told you many, many times where the blood doesn't flow, the wind won't blow. You can't have the Holy Ghost without having Christ. Did that make some sense, child of God? Right. The Spirit of God is not hanging out on his own, meeting people, doing whatever he wants to do. He's a servant of Jesus. His job is to exalt Christ and make Christ a reality in your life. And he is the living water by which you and I are brought into contact with the Savior. Isn't that not beautiful? And as for the living bird, he shall take it and the cedar wood and the scarlet. Why the scarlet? His sin. 
and the hyssop. Why? Because the hyssop is going to be used to absorb, absorb the bird. And he shall dip them in the living bird, in, and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was what? Over the what? So you take that living bird who represents the sinner. And you take all of those other articles that represents the sinner's condition and the death of the bird that died. And you take that bird and dip him in the blood and the water in order that that bird now identifies with the one that died for him. Is this not the doctrine of baptism? Is it not the doctrine of baptism? That bird is down in the water under the blood, the hyssop in the cedar. And what a glorious day when that bird comes back up and the high priest says, clean, clean, clean in the name of the Lord. And that's what a sinner is when he's saved by grace. You and I can't be healed of our leper until we die with Christ. Our leprosy is a condition that is only met by him who is our great. Samaritan. This is the conflict of the Good Samaritan, is it not? Luke chapter 10, verse 30. This is why we say by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. Listen, you had a priest. Aren't we talking about the priesthood? And then you had a Levite. Aren't we talking about the Levitical system? And Jesus is the one teaching, is he not? Now watch this. Luke 10, 30. Let's keep it moving. Luke 10, 30, and Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jericho. That means he's a what? Jew. And he was headed to where? uh, uh, From Jerusalem to Jericho. And that means he's moving from a place that is esteemed as holy to a place that is esteemed as unholy. Now, I could go into all of the historiography and all of the the sort of um, uh, conditions uh, politically and socially at that time. It was a kind of a route for criminals and, and, uh, and thugs and marauders, all that notwithstanding. Notice what he said. He fell among what? This brother coming from Jerusalem, this Jew coming from Jerusalem, fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and what? Wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. He's laying there on the side of the road like roadkill. Is that right? And then here come, here come uh, brother pastor. Look at the next verse. There it is. And by chance, there came a certain priest that way. Now, this priest is under Old Testament system, under the very system we're dealing with in Numbers chapter 19. And according to the works of the law, this priest knows that if he gets near this person and discovers that this person is dead, he will be what? Unclean. The text says, and when he saw him, He crossed the street even though the light was red and went on the other side. See, mercy is missing in the law. When you're trapped by external religion and your understanding of sin and righteousness does not go deeper than the law, he's going to cross over so he can stay clean. You see, his religion can't help that man. See what I'm getting at? This is why I warned you in the opening of our study. If you are a Levite today, you can't help anybody because to help sinners, you got to get near them. To help sinners, you got to touch them. To help sinners, you got to eat and drink with sinners. See what I'm getting at? And some of you got that problem. Don't come near me. 
Some of you got that problem. Some of you are Levites, self-righteous. You know you don't want to have nothing to do with people. No, I want, no, he's way too bad of a sinner for me. I'm saved in Jesus' name, but I don't want to touch him. I might become unclean. See, now you're mixing works and grace. And it's an indicator that you are not grounded in the sufficiency of Christ's work to help you understand you've already been separated. You've already been washed. You've already been cleansed. You can't be made filthy by the condition of another. The Bible's clear. Notice what it says in verse 33. Look at it. I'm sorry, verse 32, is, it, uh, is that, well, okay. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the same place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side too. Now, who's teaching? Jesus. Who's he talking to? The Jews. What is he doing? Painting the picture. He's giving them an optic. I'm getting ready to talk to you about that. It was Plato who said, the one that tells the story controls people. So Jesus gives a narrative and he's actually giving insight into the mercilessness of the Levitical system. Am I making some sense? They had already held a sort of prejudiced attitude against the folks in Jericho because they're like Samaritans. No good thing can come out of West Oakland. Verse verse 33 says, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. See, this Samaritan didn't have any qualms with whether or not this was a Levite, whether he was a a priest, whether he was a Jew, whether he was a Gentile, whether he was a male or a female. He had no qualms about that. He had enough curiosity to make sure as to whether or not that person was alive or dead. He cared for him. Am I making some sense? This is where we are in our generation. I'm going to make an application. It's going to hurt some of you, but it's so true. I'm living in a society where we're governed by false narratives designed to harden our hearts and construct fears in us so that we're divided all over the place in the name of pseudo forms of contamination. Pseudo forms of contamination. We just went through a major psyop over the last three years where it divided the righteous from the unrighteous. You were righteous if you were vaccinated and wore your mask and everybody else was unclean am i making some sense but that's because listen carefully to me that's because you listen to the wrong high priest i know what i'm talking about and the goal is to strip you of commitment to the truth claims of jesus christ It was always designed to strip you of the faith that allows you to have the freedom to live and dwell among sinners, unclean as they may be. You know that you are the righteousness of God in him. And we can handle any danger that comes along when you're operating out of love. Am I making some sense? I know you don't like it. It's just true. The world is always trying you whether or not Jesus is real. He's always trying you as to whether Jesus is real. Scattered the whole church, as y'all know. Folks scared to death for three years to worship God because they were a Levite and a priest rather than a Samaritan. And what's wonderful about this optic is that Jesus is owning being a, being a, 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 a vagabond, being a hybrid Samaritan. 
He's the good Samaritan. There's none good but God. God is a Samaritan in the person of Jesus. He cares nothing about your religion. He has all the merits to deal with sick folk. And that person laying there on the ground, that's you. You and I are half dead sinners apart from the mercy and grace of God. Am I telling the truth? Have dead sinners. Apart from the grace of God, you're dead spiritually. You're laying out in the road as roadkill. And if the good Samaritan doesn't come and look upon you, you'll perish in your sin. You'll perish in your sin. See what I'm getting at? What he's teaching Israel is you cannot trust in the works of the law. You cannot trust in the works of the law. I love it. Notice what the text says. He came to him. He saw him. He had compassion on him. That's the said that David was talking about in Psalm 51. Lord, have mercy on me. Well, he did in the person of the Samaritan. His name is Jesus. Do you know him, leper? Do you know him, Levite? Do you know him, priest? Do you know him, sinner? Do you know him, you religious person that don't want no one to come near you because you're holier than them? Do you know Jesus? In the cleansing power of his grace to set you free so you can love other people like Jesus did. Am I making some sense? It's really important for you to capture this. I got one more point to make and then I'm going to take you home. Point number three in our outline because it's clear to us by now we have in this heifer a picture of our spotless sacrifice for purification. Do we not? I want you to hear the language and then we're going to let the New Testament explicitly teach you something, and I'm going to show you a five-minute presentation that's going to set you up to understand the lie that you're about to be trapped by in this generation. Chapter 19, verse 17. And for an unclean person, they shall take of the ashes of the burnt heifer and purification for sin and running water and shall put them in a vessel. And the clean person shall take that hyssop, dip it in the water, sprinkle it upon the tent and upon all the vessels, upon the persons that were therein and upon all that was therein. And the clean person, verse 19, and the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day, he shall purify himself, wash his clothes and bathe himself with water and shall be clean at even. All of them will be clean. He will be clean through that ceremonial washing, through the waters of purification because of the death of that heifer. Did that make sense? Now, the New Testament is clear on this, ladies and gentlemen. We are told in Hebrews chapter nine, I'm going to start at verse 13. Where the writer to the Hebrews is dealing with this whole Testament, whole Old Testament sacerdotal system. He's already said it was an earthly sanctuary pointing to a greater reality. And I want you to capture what he says over in verse. I want you to start at verse 10. Start at verse 10. Hebrews 9.10. This is what it said about the priest. He says the Old Testament work stood in meats, right? And drinks and in what? all kinds of washings and carnal ordinances, and it was imposed on them by Moses until the time of what? Now this you must know, you and I are living in the Reformation. The Reformation is not coming, it didn't happen with Luther, it happened with Jesus. The Reformation took place when Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, and the veil of the temple was rent in half, And access to the Father was granted by the death of Jesus Christ. Did that make some sense? You and I are living in the Reformation. We're not waiting on a Reformation. 
And the Hebrew writer had already said it in chapter 8, verse 13, keep up with me, T, that the old covenant is old, dying, and waxing away. That's what he was trying to teach the Jewish people in the first century under the gospel. Stop trusting in the old covenant because it's done away in Christ. This is why when you and I observe the Lord's table, what do we say? Jesus said, this is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, either we believe in the blood of Christ or we don't. And if we believe in the blood of Christ, we know that Jesus is our high priest and we are operating out of a new covenant. Am I telling the truth? A new covenant with better promises, with a better covenant, with a better hope and a better high priest. Now listen to what he says about this. It's important for you to get because of where we're going. Let me see. Can you stay at verse 10? I want to make sure I didn't miss anything there. All right. So yeah, good. Verse 11. Thank you. Verse 11. But Christ... But Christ, this is what we call a contrasting conjunction. Jesus is the high priest now. In the previous verse, it was the other high priest, whether Aaron or Eleazar or somebody else. All that they did could never take away sin. Listen to what the text says. But Christ becoming a high priest of what? Good things to come. Now that was stated in the first century. You and I are 2,000 years later. This is not talking about things to come, but things that are now present, having been prophesied by things in the Old Testament. Jesus has come. He's taken his seat in glory. He is our present high priest. Isn't that what we sang? Jesus, our great high priest. Right. Listen to what it says. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Do you believe that? What is he talking about? He's talking about the church of the living God. You and I are the tabernacle of Christ. We're the temple of the most high God. Would you believe that? Both on earth and in heaven. Listen to the language. Let it speak. Not made with hands. That is to say of this building. He's making a contrast between the old and the new. Look at verse 12. Let's walk this through. Neither by the blood of goats and calves. Jesus doesn't have his priests offering the blood of goats and calves. Did y'all get that? Jesus doesn't have his priests, which we are, offering the blood of bulls and goats and calves. I want to say it one more time. Jesus, who is our great high priest under the new covenant, does not call you and I to the material sacrifices of bulls and goats and heifers. Did you hear what I just stated? You need to get this because this is the Bible. This is the word of the living God. Listen very carefully to it. He says, but by his own blood, he entered in one time. Did that make some sense? I know the day, do you? Almost 2,000 years ago, on the day in which he subsumed Passover, the night he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, the next morning a kangaroo court condemned him to death. He died before the evening because it would become Sabbath. They laid him in a borrowed tomb. He rose again on Sunday morning with all power and authority in his hand. And he told his people to go into all the world and preach the gospel because he's Lord and Christ over everyone. He is the mediator of the new covenant. 
And men and women are saved by his death on Calvary. Once for all, he entered into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Are you thus? Look at the next verse. Listen to it. Look at the next verse. For if the blood of bulls and goats, and here it is. Thank you, writer to the Hebrews. And the ashes of a heifer sprinkled the unclean, sanctifying to the purifying of the what? See, I told you, it was all external things. Those are all external things. Jesus sanctifies us deeper than the flesh because the red heifer of the Old Testament points to Jesus, the fulfillment of what that Old Testament heifer represented. Is anybody here clear on what I'm saying? Please get it because it's necessary for you to get because of the delusions going on in my present generation. Listen to what he said. How much more shall the blood of Christ, that's the second person, who through the eternal spirit, that's the third person, offered himself without spot to God, that's the first person. This is the triune work of the glorious God of redemption in the person of Christ by the power of the Holy Ghost. Watch this. Purge your conscience. See, chapter 9 said the priests could never, ever be cleared in their conscience. Why? They were offering the blood of bulls and goats. A bull is not equivalent to a human being. A goat is not equivalent to a child. God made us in the Imago Day, And you've got to have someone equivalent to you and more to take your place under the wrath of God. Jesus didn't come as a goat, bull, heifer. He came as a man. He assumed our nature. He was one of us. And when he died on the cross, he died in our place as the ultimate red heifer without spot and without blemish. And he has, by his death on the cross, purged our conscience from sin and from dead works that we might serve the true and the living God by grace. Am I telling the truth? By the grace of the living God. What can wash away the guilt of my sin? The blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ. When preached in the power of the Holy Ghost, I'm liberated from that guilt because I've been washed by the purifying waters of the death-atoning work of Jesus Christ. Is that not good news? Is that not good news? Yeah. Now, there's some in the house that don't know this celebration. I feel sorry for you. Three Four subpoints. The spotless sacrifice was chosen. The sins of his people were imputed to him, right? He who became sin for us, having known no sin, God laid upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. We become the very righteousness of God in him. The sufferings of Christ were also outside the camp. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11. Remember, you had to take the, the, the heifer outside the camp into a clean place. Did you not? Right. right. It couldn't be done in the tabernacle. It couldn't be done in the camp. It was on the outside because the heifer had become unclean for you. 
Listen to what the Bible says. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are what? Burned without the camp. He's talking about the heifer. Look at verse 12 and learn it well. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. Do you know the narrative, child of God? Do you know the narrative? They laid a cross on his back and they headed him out to Golgotha. He went through the courts across the brook Kidron, outside the camp, burying our sins. Do you see the heifer in Jesus? He's right there. He's right there. Listen to what it says. Wherefore Jesus, also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. Does his blood sanctify? Suffered without the gate. Look at verse 13. I love it. Let us go forth therefore unto him. That's an imperative. The only place you're going to find a real heifer that can take away your sins is in the person of Christ. Did y'all get that? Then why are we still looking at red heifers? Give me five minutes presentation. The five red heifers are now in a secure, undisclosed location in Israel. Plans include moving them sometime soon to a visitor's center in Shiloh, where the tabernacle of the Lord once stood for nearly 400 years. The book of Numbers explains that ashes of the red heifer are used to purify priests for their service in the temple. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect and on which a yoke has never come. You shall give it to Eliezer the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. Its offal shall be burned, for the water of purification it is for purifying from sin. These red heifers are now between one and a half to two years old. To replicate the ceremony mentioned in the Bible, they need to be at least three years old. And within that time span, they cannot have a blemish or anything that would disqualify them for the ceremony, even one white or black hair. According to those working on the project, the ceremony of the red heifer needs to be performed on the Mount of Olives and in a place that would have looked directly into where the temple stood. The land I'm standing on, bought 12 years ago, fits both of those standards. It had to be exactly at the front of place that the priest that made this ceremony can see the holy of the holy place. Rabbi Yitzhak Mamo owns the land here on the Mount of Olives. And we hope that in a year and a half from today, we can make here in this area the ceremony of the red heifer that actually will be the first step to the temple. Mamo says the ceremony needs priests who have not been defiled by touching anything dead. The Temple Institute actually has uh, nine pure priests. They didn't born in hospital, okay, they born at home. Mm-hmm. Because they are priests, so anyway, they don't go to any cemetery. Mm-hmm. And the parents keep them in a situation that they will not get to any cemetery, not going to mm-hmm. other, any uh, problematic place, and they are pure, mm-hmm. and they are waiting. So we have the priest, we have the red heifer, we have the land, and we have everything ready. We just need to wait another one and a half year. 
So we believe that uh, it's very likely that the ceremony would happen somewhere in the area of Passover 2024 out to possibility of Shaviot 2024, somewhere in that timeline, the cows would be old enough and it would be the proper timeline for that ceremony. Byron Stinson of Bornay, Israel, helped find the red heifers in the U.S. He says these would be the first in 2,000 years and that the process toward a third Jewish temple began when the Jewish people started their return to the Promised Land from the four corners of the world, culminating with Israel becoming a nation. And then in 1948, in one day, they were reborn as a nation, and nobody said that could happen. And then you move forward, and Israel continues to be this strong nation, and all of these prophecies start fulfilling. There's so many now have been fulfilled. It's just incredible the evidence of what God is doing with uh, Jerusalem as the center of that. And the temple is the center of Jerusalem. And so how can it happen and how will it happen? I don't think anyone really knows for sure. Stinson believes the temple is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. You know, in the Bible, it says when Solomon built the first temple, he said this is a house of worship for all, all nations. That's what the temple is. And I think a lot of people think it's just the Jewish temple, but that's not true. It's for all the nations of the earth. Stinson says they plan to invite everyone to the red heifer ceremony that may take place in Passover 2024. Everything is in place now with the red heifers. As long as they stay pure, one of them stays pure, then we have everything in place, including the priests. Mamo says according to the Jewish sage Maimonides, there were nine red heifers from Moses to the second temple. It's not his way to write but suddenly he said, the tent will make the Messiah. We know that the Messiah will make the tent. Maybe we have the privilege to be one of these people that uh, helped the Messiah to do it. So we're waiting. Chris Mitchell, CBN News, the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem. All right, you can stop right there. The, uh, the question that I'm going to raise to you is, are we looking yet for another red heifer? The other question then that we have to deal with is why would Christians be engaged in that kind of promotion when they have a complete canon that clearly lays out who the red heifer points to? What, here's the other question that I'm going to pose to you. Do we live in a world wherein because of technology and because of the capacity for human beings to be easily manipulated by data. Um, can you and I be made to think something contrary to God's word simply because it's promoted over and over and over again with optics and images and cameras and data and, and constructs like in Hollywood, like in the news media, like in our banking system, our information system? Can we, can we, can we subtly slip into uh, the notion that because everybody's believing it, it must be true? So this is, no, yes, the answer is yes. That's the world I live in. This is why your master told you right before he left, beware of men, they will deceive you. You and I have just gone through an exercise recently of the most marvelous Marvelous optics and, and construction of fear and death and visuals of numbers and images 
And this has been going on for many of us for many years. Our news media knows how to actually even go into war zones and set up cameras and images and pictures, does it not? And appeal to you on an emotional level. We've caught many of them using the same reels over five and 10 and 15 years, bringing them up to date so that you can be sad about some little child blown up or destroyed. Come to find out that happened seven years earlier. It's called the media deceptive outlet systems. I have been warning for a long time that the common eschatological positions in our world are actually captivated as well as a lot of our other institutions. What do I mean by that? I mean our churches have been deceived, infiltrated for many, many, many uh, decades by Marxist, socialist, antichrist systems. And the present prevailing eschatological view, which a lot of you hold, actually tolerates a contradiction to your Bible. Because what we're talking about seeing in a few years is the reemergence of a temple in Jerusalem, the reemergence of a Levitical priesthood, the reemergence of sacrifices and offerings as soon as they get the right red heifer to cleanse the priest. Now, I don't mind the Jews doing that because the Bible tells me they're blind. I get it. I was blind too. But what bothers me are all the Christians that get involved in that same thing rather than loving on their Jewish brethren and saying, hey, no more red heifers. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. The Jerusalem that we honor is in heaven, who is the mother of us all by whom we are truly free. The temple that we honor is the temple of Christ and the body of Christ, both in heaven and on earth. There is no more sacrifice, no more bulls and goats. They all were summed up in Jesus. And if Jesus is not the end of the law for you, this next optic that's coming is going to bring the whole world into a diabolical antichrist system that will not be able to be overcome. Did you hear what I just said? Children of the living God. All right, I want to do something that's exciting on this last note so you guys can struggle through this portion over the course of the weeks and months to come because you heard him say May of 20, April, May of 2024. Didn't y'all hear that? So we get a chance to see what I have warned about as self-fulfilling prophecy. See, like you can make prophecy come to pass. You can construct it. You can frame it. You can hire the characters. You can paint the images and the constructs. Am I making some sense? This is where Christians need to wake up. The church has been doing this forever. The Hollywood shenanigans that have gone on in the church have deceived masses of people. And almost all of your major denominations has bought into this eschatological construct. The Bible tells me that Satan will be loosed and he will deceive many. And you and I need to be very discerning. And then keep it simple, just in case you're already going through cognitive dissonance. 
If it doesn't exalt Jesus as the end of the law for righteousness, you're buying into a deceptive system. Did that make some sense? Amen, amen.